Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. I'm recording this podcast from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where I've been attending a roundtable on how electoral boundaries are drawn with representatives from numerous countries across Asia. I've interviewed a number of participants from India to Mongolia about their country's electoral system and their experience with the redrawing of electoral boundaries. We call this process redistribution in Australia, but elsewhere it's referred to as delimitation, reapportionment or redistricting. I'm Niranjan Sahu from India. I work as a senior fellow with uh, Observer Resource Foundation, a prominent think tank in India. And that effort, I've been uh, also working with other think tanks like Kani and Domain for Interested Peace, and then in some of the German based uh, think tank like Robert Burstiftum. Uh, I primarily cover issues of uh, uh, democracy, uh, political funding election uh, also issues of you know uh, fragility violence and uh, conflicts uh, linking it with democracy mm. so one of the things you presented on was that india hasn't had a delimitation for about 50 years why is that that's a very strange sort of issue because delimitation is supposed to be as per our constitution it, uh, sort of every 10 years it should happen uh, up to every census but what's happening is that uh, because we have a huge serious issue of population uh, disparities uh, in which northern India, especially seven, eight states, uh, large states, the population has grown very fast. Whereas the southern states, which are more prosperous, but the population has shrunk. So in a sense, what has happened is because our delimitation and uh, Lok Sabha seats, also state assembly seats are decided based on population size. So the politicians and political party in the 70s were forced to uh, postpone it because this would have created a lot of political backlash from the south because their numbers will decrease mm. based on the population size. So they said that, you know, we'll freeze it for next 20 years and uh, let's ensure that population uh, which are growing in some of the states are actually brought to a sort of a sizable kind of you know, numbers. But after 25 years, nothing has really happened and in fact, those states have really grown very fast in terms of their population. And But today, we have reached almost like, you know, we have had another postponement for 20 years, but we have reached now 50 years. So we can't actually postpone it forever because it has become a huge uh, crisis of representation. Some states, the population is so heavy, but the number of seats in parliament and assemblies are few. So that has created a lot of disproportional uh, issues. And the North generally is a stronger part of the country for the current Modi government, right? So that also then has effects in terms of the party balance in Indian politics if the North were to gain more seats relative to the South. Yeah, that's a good question because uh, the Bharatiya Janta Party, which is in power, is, uh, is basically uh, sort of pro-Hindu national party and largely it's... Uh, voting base is around the Hindi heartland states, you know, which is North India. You know, six, seven states like Uttar Pradesh, Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, Bihar, where it has a large presence. And number of seats actually, suppose if you said like 265 seats uh, in those five states, 
of Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh and all that. So out of that, BJP has won almost two-thirds of the seats. So if uh, those uh, delimitation happens, the numbers also going to increase, you know, another almost like 60-70 seats are going to be added. And that actually benefits BJP compared to South uh, India, where in those five states, BJP doesn't have a government and it uh, has won very few seats. So yeah. in a sense, uh, this uh, reopening, you know, this delimitation exercise is of BJP's own interest, political interest, because that would help it actually to cement its position and can rule for uh, for longer period of time. So, so there is a politics in it also. Thanks for your time. Uh, my name is Heroic. I am from Indonesia, from the Associations for Elections and Democracy. So you were telling us yesterday about mm. Indonesia's experience with changing electoral boundaries mm. and fairness of electoral boundaries. But just to start, Indonesia has a proportional system, yep. which is not true of a lot of the other people who've mm. been represented here this weekend, where you have an open list PR yep. system with multi-member districts. Yep. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, actually since 1955, for the first elections in Indonesia after our independence, we always use proportional. Uh, since uh, 55 until uh, 2004 elections, after the collapse of the authoritarian regime in 1998, uh, we still use the closely proportional representations. But in 2009, after the constitutional decisions decree, we shift to the open list proportional with a multi-member uh, district. Of course, we, because we use a proportional, one of the characteristic of the proportional is the multi-member districts. But the interesting part when we use the multi-member district, there is some uh, district magnitudes. It means when you build the boundary, you put minimum uh, allocation is start from three and maximum with uh, 10 for uh, DPR. DPR, it's mean the national uh, parliament. Yeah, so that's a range of three to 10 seats per district. Mm. But the numbers of seats per population yeah. are actually quite unequal, both at the provincial level and then sometimes within a province, right? Yeah. Yeah, actually for national uh, parliament, we have uh, 580 seats but for provincials and also municipal it depends on the population it's regulated under the uh, elections laws mm -hmm. so the districts were originally being drawn by the electoral commission but they are now effectively drawn through legislation yes. parliament passes a law yeah. that says that boundaries should follow particular areas yes. Yeah, since 2009, before that, in 1999-2004 elections, the Elections Commission have full authority to create boundary delimitations for national, provincial, and also municipal. But in 2009, uh, the authority to build the district in national DPR or national parliament was erased, and the politicians in the parliament, uh, they built the own boundary delimitations on the elections law. So there is a uh, violations inside the elections law, for example, regarding the malapportionment uh, uh, between the seat allocations and the population with for uh, 2000 uh, for uh, more than 30 uh, provinces in Indonesia, uh, we found there is uh, 11 uh, provinces not 
under representations and we find the other uh, egg if i'm not mistake egg uh, province is over representations because the mal apportionment under the the election so so we also uh, found uh, there is some uh, violations about the contiguities uh, principles or in indonesia law we call it the integralities when you create the electoral districts between the regions you should have a border directly between the land but we found there is uh, Uh, West Java 3 electoral district, uh, South Kalimantan uh, 2, and also for the provincial uh, parliament we found the Lampung and also DKI Jakarta. There is one of electoral district not meet with the integrality. So there is uh, two different area. They separated, not uh, directly border, uh, not connected each other, but the politicians create the electoral district. Mostly Indonesian practitioner from the GSO or scholar, we call it the Superman electoral district because it's not connected by the land, but it's connected by uh, the air. Uh, And finally, you ended up taking a lot of these issues to the Constitutional Court. What happened then? Yeah, we feel uh, the judicial review to the constitutional court to put back the authority of uh, boundary delimitations to the elections commissions and constitutional court uh, decisions is uh, fully recognize our uh, request and actually now the elections commission have full authority to create uh, boundary delimitations. Uh, for the upcoming elections, I think last year actually uh, the elections commission prepared to doing uh, redistricting, but there is the rejections. So mostly politicians in the parliament, mostly political party in uh, parliament, they reject to redistricting for the upcoming elections because they say it's like we was running a campaign before on our electoral district so you will change my seats allocations and the boundaries on the electoral district so it will make different competitions because a lot of uh, rejections on the uh, parliament by political parties the elections commissions failed uh, they follow the instructions of the political party to not doing redistrictions Even though actually based on the law, the elections law and also the constitutional decree, the election commissions is fully independent. They have authority to build their own regulations without any interventions. Even though when they uh, create regulations, they should make consultations with the, uh, the DPR or the parliament, the MPs. But the result of the consultations is not must be followed fully by uh, the elections commissions because they're independent. But because there is the interventions, the elections commissions know. No. So in theory, they have the power, the commission yeah. has the power to do it themselves independently, yeah. but that hasn't actually been implemented yet. Yeah. Do you think it's possible that might be implemented for 2029, but not for 2024? Yeah, it should be uh, implemented for 2029 elections. So actually, in my organizations, in Association for Elections and Democracy, we have planned to advocate it after 2024. We should doing uh, redistricting in the early after the 2024 elections the elections commission should start reapportionment and also redistricting for the upcoming uh, elections thanks so much hi i am chin white a political scientist at sunway university malaysia i specialize on political institutions including electoral system 
from Malaysia has gone through quite a bit of changes in the last few years. There was a change of government and then kind of a mid-term change of government and then there's a new coalition government after last year's election. What have been the changes with the new governments that Malaysia's had over the last few years after, for decades, having basically the same party in power? We have had the same ruling coalitions for 61 years. And for the next five years, we have had uh, four new governments. So that shows how fast things have changed in Malaysia. We started off with a one coalition predominance, followed by uh, brief periods of two coalition competitions, a bit like Anglo-American two-party system. And now we are seeing a fluid multi-party system with a hung parliament and a post-election coalition government. I see the latest change to a fluid multi-party system as a good thing because it forces the party to be more accommodative of each other to avoid going too far in demonizing each other. But they may not last because of the first-past-the-post system. It seems like we may go back to a two-collation system, but not a benign one with two multi-ethnic collations, but rather with a multi-ethnic collation on one side, in this case the government, and a mono-ethnic collation on the other side, uh, now the opposition, which may eventually give benefits to the mono-ethnic bloc because uh, the ethnic majority voters find that a mono-ethnic collation is more assuring. So we talked a bit today about how Malaysia's electoral system is first-past-the-post, single-member electorates, but those electorates are severely gerrymandered, one of the worst in the world for gerrymandering. Yes. Yes. Uh, Malaysia first-past-the-post system is plagued by both malapportionments and gerrymandering. We have the problem at both levels, interstate and intrastate, because the federal seats are allocated to the states, not based on any formula uh, related to electorate or population size, but rather arbitrarily decided by the parliament. Then, within the same states, the election commission has not abided by the constitutional provision to carve out constituency with approximately equal number of voters. So in some worst situation, within the same state, a constituency may have six times the electorate of another. Are you optimistic that with the kind of new political leadership and changes there's been in terms of who, who has been winning elections, that there could be a change to how this electoral system has been working? I'm actually not optimistic. The reason being that malapportionment and gerrymandering has been seen by a big part of that population as a necessary evil to preserve the political dominance of ethnic majority. So even though this government is led by a reformist bloc, but it has shown very little political will to move forward reforms related to identity politics 
for the fear that it would chase away more ethnic majority Malay Muslim voters to the opposition side. So even though male apportionment in theory is fixable within the next few years, I do not expect the government to want to start the process. Instead, our best hope might be tweaking the electoral system by adding some party list seats to mitigate the excessive seat vote disproportionality. Because with close list party uh, proportional seats added alongside first past the post seats, we can actually provide incentives for all parties, including the Malay Muslim based opposition parties, to gain seats and therefore possibly supported by them, but most of all to perpetuate the current multi block scenario. Thanks for your time. Thank you. I'm, I'm Louis Gia. I was a former election commissioner in the Philippines and uh, I completed my seven-year term in 2020. Now I teach law and political science and I have this NGO called Democratic Insights Group. So the Philippines got a new constitution in 1987 and most of the seats in lower house of parliament are single member electorates but when you were speaking yesterday you were saying that those electoral boundaries there's no kind of central process of redrawing them it just kind of happens when there's legislation through parliament to redraw seats in one particular part of the country. That's right, that's right. Redrawing of district boundaries happen when let's say a legislator might be interested in redrawing the boundaries where he lives or within his uh, constituency and that's how it happens. You were also saying the party system in the Philippines is quite weak so often party loyalties aren't very deep and actually it's often family connections that are more significant for politicians in particular parts of the country? Well, the, the families actually play the role of political parties uh, yeah. in, in the Philippines in the sense that it's where, uh, you know, um, electoral adventures are resourced and even organizations are basically uh, done through families. Uh, and these are things that you should be expecting for political parties. So, yeah, political parties. So, weak shifting of allegiances happen almost every uh, session of uh, Congress. And so, unsurprising, I guess, when you've never had this process of just looking at the whole country overall and assessing the electorates generally, what's happened is there's, there's quite significant malapportionment, right, both inside provinces and between them. You showed us an example yesterday of a province where there used to be two constituencies and now there's four but one of those four constituencies still covers about half the population that's right because uh from the former two constituencies um only one of them was uh, divided basically because uh, maybe the legislator was the one who initiated this habit the whole uh, House of Representatives agree, but the other one did not. So there was no compulsion on that part of the district to be divided. And what happened is that uh, the district that was, wasn't divided became the biggest electoral district uh, in terms of population, numbering about 1.2 million, mm. when the average should be about 250 to 300,000. Mm. All right, thanks. It was so interesting hearing about the Philippines. Thanks for your time. My pleasure.
Uh, my name is Inge uh, Tsitsuga. I work for um, OpenCIT for Mongolia, which is a, uh, a civil society organization working to promote democracy in Mongolia. Mongolia has been a democracy kind of since the early 90s, um, but in that time you've had kind of maintained having free elections but there's been quite a few changes in the voting system in that time. Yes, Mongolia is known as an oasis of democracy and an authoritarian sea. If you look at Freedom House uh, uh, annual uh, report, then Mongolia is, you know, looks like a little island, this green mm. island of democracy, but it has its fair share of problems. Uh, yes, we have had regular elections, but then when it comes to finer details, there uh, we are encountering some problems which are uh, we are trying to fix as well so parliament is reforming uh, electoral laws before every election trying to fix some of the problems also creating some problems i guess in the process too and then recently also parliament adopted a new um, law on political parties introducing public funding for the first time because political parties are at the end of the day where they are the main players in elections right and if they are not uh, good institutions, then we have uh, problems with uh, our elections. So many, many things uh, mm. here we need to pay attention. There's been different voting systems. Sometimes there's been a bit of proportional representation, mm -hmm. but there's always been this sort of majoritarian first-past-the-post electorates. And there has been a number of elections, right, where a party has kind of won a lopsided victory much more than their share of the vote. Exactly. So this is where uh, I think uh, the biggest problem we've seen with elections in Mongolia, because when it comes to electoral systems and how the system is designed, it has been mostly partisan decisions mm. uh, driven by partisan interests and... Uh, Recently, there has been some effort to fix that. So in the constitution now, we have like uh, stated what kind of principles like we'll be using when we uh, elect our um, now larger parliament. Until now, we've had like uh, 76 seats in parliament, but like starting from next year, it will be 126 and 48 seats will be PR. So, uh, you know, no, no proportional representation. So that's new, that's in the constitution, and this is uh, Parliament's way of trying to like have some kind of stable rules that, that the law, the electoral system doesn't change before every election driven by partisan interests. And finally, uh, you talked a little bit about how the capital Ulaanbaatar has quite a large share of the national population is in the capital, but in terms of the distribution of electorates, it's significantly underrepresented compared to the rest of the country. Exactly. That's where the problem of malappropriation happens because almost more than half of Mongolia's 3.3 uh, .3 million people live in the city, urban city, because there are obviously more economic opportunities and income opportunities, right? Uh, compared to the rest of the country. But uh, in elections, they are very severely underrepresented and there's uh, quite a significant uh, gap between the voter per seat um, uh, ratio when, it, uh, when you compare the urban ratio to the countryside ratio. And that's something that's never addressed in the laws and that's something that's never brought up also in uh, a debate about the electoral reform in Mongolia. Great, thank you. I attended the roundtable to talk to a paper I had prepared last year for the Australian National University regarding redistributions in Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea last conducted a comprehensive redistribution in 1977, just two years after gaining independence from Australia. 
a number of draft redistributions were conducted over the subsequent decades, but they could never achieve agreement in Parliament until a small redistribution was passed in 2022, shortly before the national election that year. That redistribution targeted just 13 seats, splitting each of them in half. Seven of these changes took place for the 2022 election, with the remaining six scheduled to take effect in 2027. While this is a good start, it was very modest. While most of the targeted seats were amongst the most populous in the country, this isn't universally true, and some of the most malapportioned seats were left alone. It's understandable that Papua New Guinea can't undo 45 years of inaction in one go, but ultimately they will need to go beyond splitting high population seats. In some provinces, neighbouring seats have much lower populations and much higher populations, and more detailed changes will be needed to ensure political equality. Well, at the end of the second day, we agreed to a declaration from those present at the round table, laying out broad principles for apportionment and delimitation, principles that can help ensure an independent, transparent process that results in districts with relatively equal population numbers and ones that are not gerrymandered. My last guest is one of the organisers of the event. My name is Adi Aman. I work for the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, or International IDEA. This roundtable, what was the reason why you organised it? Yeah, we've observed over the years that boundary limitation issues such as malapportionment and uh, gerrymandering hasn't been much addressed in the international assistance arena. Uh, which is a field that international idea is actively involved in. Uh, and therefore, we've uh, been thinking about how uh, we can improve democratic processes by addressing these issues. So this roundtable is, is one of the first steps mm. that we take, in addition to what we've done previously, i.e. establishing the electoral redistricting app or ERA. Yeah, it's been really interesting to participate in and see everyone from all across the region. We just completed a declaration about delimitation and apportionment. Tell me about that. Yeah, thanks for being with us, uh, Ben. And the declaration is actually uh, meant to be a collection of minds of those who participated in the discussions. And it's meant to be a launching pad for advocacy efforts in the various countries uh, where we have uh, laid out a number of principles for uh, good boundary limitation practices. And uh, that's what the declaration is for. It's great, thank you. that's about it for this episode of the tally room podcast thank you to all my guests for sharing their experiences you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice if you like the show please consider rating or reviewing us on itunes you can follow the tally room on mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on facebook this podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on patreon sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music here in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.